Our Heavenly Father, we, we are very, very grateful for your grace and for your mercy. Because these things, not only, Father, these attributes that you uh, pour into our lives, these facts that become real through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, these things also enable us, Lord God, to lament and to complain to you when we perceive that you are not acting in, in ways that seem to run contrary to your character. Uh, we thank you, Lord God, that you allow us to, to voice our complaint uh, for the very purpose of, of teaching and training us in righteousness, that it is through lament, Lord God, we deepen our faith. It is through lament that we come to see you in a clearer light, that you train us and you teach us and you open our heart to see you in ways that we could not otherwise were it not for lament, were it not for the difficulties and the wrestlings that we encounter when we perceive that you were not acting in ways that we think you should. So we thank you for the Psalm 89, for for Ethan's word to us, because it does open our eyes into seeing you in, in a new and um, a better way. Because, Father, ultimately we are going to be pointed to Christ and to see that the, the truest, the deepest, the more permanent demonstration of your steadfast love and faithfulness is the Lord Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension at the right hand, his continual praying for us and, Father, our faith in, in the sure and certain hope of his return, which will then lead to the final and ultimate resurrection from the dead, when we shall indeed be united with you forever. And our love for you will grow more and more perfect uh, as eternity marches forward. And so we pray now, Lord God, that we would learn to love words like Psalm 89, uh, to embrace even seasons of trial and difficulty because we know they are designed to make us more and more like your son. And so we pray, Lord God, for increased faith, for a clearer vision, and for a firmer trust in your steadfast love and a greater conviction of your faithfulness. For Father, we ask and pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, Psalm 89 uh, is uh, a mass kill of Ethan the uh, Ezraite. We're going to read uh, the whole thing again, and we're going to look at the second half. Last week we looked at the first half, verses 1 to 37. We took selections from that first half. Uh, this week we're going to look at um, the second half and, and break it down from, from that point forward. So the psalm begins with this bold declaration of faith where Ethan says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, this is the Lord now speaking, steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. You have said I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with all your faithfulness all around you? 
You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who, have, who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law, and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all have I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David." His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. But now, you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. And you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations, with which your enemies mock, O Lord. 
with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. We said last week the first thing you notice about Psalm 89 is it's long. It's the third longest psalm in the Psalter. We also recognize that it's called a mass kill of Ethan the Ezraite. The, the general consensus being that a mass kill is a, a skillfully written song that is designed to give us insight into a particular characteristic of God as well as even insight into the human heart. So Psalm 89, we said, is a, is a teaching psalm. It's a wisdom psalm to make one wise, to give us insight not only into the character of God, but also insight into the human heart and how God, by his grace and the way he works, can change our heart. We said that Ethan, uh, Ethan the Ezraite, it was one of the chief musicians David appointed to lead the, the choir in the temple, and that he sang in the temple along with Heman the Ezraite, who wrote Psalm 88, and then Asaph, as well, and Asaph wrote a number of the psalms uh, in this third book of the psalms, starting with Psalm 73. We also said that the dominant question that pervades Psalm 89, it, it sort of is always there under the surface and then bubbles up from time to time, is what do you do when God does something that challenges everything you believe about him, about his character, about his love? The first half of Psalm 89 is, is very ebullient, it's very optimistic, it's almost joyful. It celebrates the faithfulness of God to David and to the nation of Israel. The language is just strong and hearty. Uh, when God does something to challenge what we think about him, the, the first half of Psalm 89 says, well, you remember his faithfulness to David, how, how God in his faithfulness to the nation did lift him up, God chose him. Uh, and then set him apart from all the others. And we related that to how God chooses us in Christ, Christ being the greater David, and how being chosen in Christ is a sense of security that we gain from that. And then secondly, we must trust in God's um, faithfulness that it guarantees that he will always do right. We notice that you know, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So God will always do right by his name, right by his character, and he will always be just. He will always look out for the oppressed. He will always look out for his own glory. However, when you get to Psalm 38, the, there is a certain a specific and a very definite change in tone. If this were a musical piece, and I don't know music, but I only know this part, you go from a major key to a minor key. You go from this very, very bright kind of music to almost a dirge. This very mournful, uh, plaintive kind of language that is used. The optimism that characterized uh, and permeated verses 1 to 37 is replaced by, lang uh, by lament and complaint in, uh, one, in the 38 to 51. You might say that this second half of Psalm 89 uh, addresses what you would call the Job question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow calamity and, and suffering and, and discipline to happen to what we would think are good people? That's an important question to wrestle with. And there are books that have been written about that. The psalmist addresses it in these few verses. And as important as that question is, we can't let it obscure a very fundamental fact. 
that in the words of one scholar, very often when bad things happen to us, it's because we're bad people. We have this idea that we are constitu- our very constituency is, is good, that we are basically good people. And when bad things happen to us, we can't make sense of it. But the Bible paints a different picture of that. The Bible paints a picture of the fact that we are born, born in a fallen state. We are born rebels against God. So we are not by nature good in the terms of being able to make sound and wise moral choices. And when things happen to us, it's likely because we have done something to bring that about. At least so far as the psalm is concerned. There are other, when you get into the New Testament, sometimes God disciplines us to train us and so forth. But the the fundamental lesson here that uh, Ethan is wrestling with is when bad things happen, it may in fact be due to the fact that we are at our core bad with the capacity for good having been made good by the righteousness of Christ. So he praises, does Ethan, in the first 37 verses of the psalm, praises God for his faithfulness, praises him for his unwavering faithfulness. But then in verse 38, and I hope you caught it as I read it, he just unleashes this barrage of accusations. There are 12 of them, all starting with you. You, and he's just sort of, He's angry at God because God is now acting in a way and behaving in a way that he cannot reconcile with his, not only his own sense of, wait a minute, if I'm a good person, why are these things happening to us? If my neighbors are good, why are these things happening to us? If God is good, why are these things happening to us? And isn't that the way, right? If you will, our innate selfishness an inability to reconcile the fact that God is always just. When things go wrong, our inclination is always not to look at us and say, gosh, maybe I've done something here, but our inclination is to blame God. God is at fault. God has done something awful, and that I must now accuse him of that. The one positive thing about Ethan's lament and his complaint here is that he makes his lament and he makes his complaint to God. He doesn't turn to his neighbor, he doesn't go to his counselor, he doesn't go to his small group of friends, but he lodges his complaint, he hurls it up into the atmosphere at God himself, and that is a good thing. Why is that good? Well, because his lament brings to mind something I read recently in uh, Paul's trip devotional, New Morning Mercies, which I... Uh, heartily recommend uh, you to pick up a copy if you <clears throat> don't already have it. New Morning Mercies. Uh, the entry for August the 15th, uh, Tripp writes this. This is in the context of lament and crying out to God. He says, your life is really shaped by whom you cry to. If your cry is a complaint, you will find yourself with other complainers because misery loves company. And your heart will grow more discouraged and hardened. If you cry to people instead of God, you will ask those people to do only what God can do. They will feel overwhelmed and unable, and you will grow more desperate. If you silence your cries, crying only to yourself, you will feel increasingly alone and without anyone who cares and understands, and you'll feel more and more helpless. The good news of the gospel, continues Tripp, is that you don't have to muffle your cries. You don't have to be ashamed that you have reason to cry. 
And you surely don't have to feel that God is too grand, too far off, or too busy with more important things than to listen to your measly little cries for help. I think one of the reasons for the Psalms in the Bible is to give us courage to cry and to teach us when to cry. Your life really is shaped by whom you cry to. Don't complain to someone else. Cry out to God. He'll never turn a deaf ear to the cries of his people. So if you have ever found yourself in a situation like Ethan, where you are wrestling with the fact that you're going through an awful time, someone you love is going through a difficult time, and you don't know to whom you can turn, your best option, says Ethan, is to turn to God and lament and to cry to him. Because he is the only one, remember, who is going to understand the depth of your pain. The Father is the only one who truly understood all that Jesus gave up on the cross. The Father is the only one who understood the pain of Jesus' cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so if God the Father can understand fully and completely the anguish of Jesus' lament from the cross, certainly God can understand the, the, the depth of our anguish, the depth of our anxiety, the depth of our angst, the depth of our anger, the depth of our desperation. So if you're going to cry to anyone, cry to God. Lament to Him. When He does something that challenges your view of Him, your understanding of His character and love, the best thing to do, the wisest thing to do, is to cry out to Him. And to say exactly what Ethan says. It's interesting, too. The beauty of the Psalms is it shows us with, when we're at our best, as well as revealing us when we're at our worst. These are bitter laments that he lifts up to God. I described to you last week when I would go on my 45-minute to an hour rants when we lived in Canada complaining to God about this or that. And how audacious of me, a created creature, accusing God of being unjust. But he allows that, because that whole purpose of lament is to draw out from us, if you will, that poison. To draw out from us that bile, that, that invective. And so that once it's out there in the light, it's dealt with. And then God, through his righteousness and justice, his grace and his mercy, his wisdom and insight, can then now lead us along into paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So what do you do when God challenges everything that you've come to believe about him? You remember his faithfulness to David, his faithfulness to past saints. You remember that everything that God does, he's going to do right by, he's going to be righteous and just. Then you get to verses 38 to 45, when God does something that challenges everything you believe about him, you cry out to him. You tell him. You complain. There's nothing wrong with complaining to him. The Psalms are full of, the, particularly in the, the third book. And just listen again. You have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his stronghold in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. You have not made him stand in battle. 
You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Now, if this were another sermon on another day, I would say very clearly, this is a description of Christ being humiliated, dragged before his accusers, whipped, beaten, lashed, nailed to a cross, mocked in scorn as he lay hanging there with the religious leaders telling him, you saved others, you can't save himself. Let's see if he comes down from the cross. But we're not going to say that. But you can certainly see that in here. And what, the, what Ethan cannot reconcile is how could God allow the glory and splendor of his chosen king be so despised? <clears throat> his lament really exposes the double-mindedness of the human heart. Because he feels on one hand, Ethan feels on one hand, he has every right in the world to complain to God and tell him how unfair and how unjust he is to allow these things to happen. And on the other hand, he has completely forgotten what he's already written back in verse uh, 31, where he says there that God, speaking of, of his love for David and his covenant, says, I will punish those who disobey. I will punish their, their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes or, or flogging, as another translation says. It's as if Ethan is somehow now surprised to discover that God is really serious about keeping his rules and following his ways. It's like, oh, I know that you gave us these rules to follow, but when we break them, you're really going to punish us for this? I mean, you're, you're serious about this. You know, somehow it takes us by surprise when God upholds his word. It's as if we can be faithless, but God can't be faithful to his word. It's a, it's a sense in which Ethan is taking God's grace for granted. Certainly God is going to allow us a little leeway. That's what grace is for, right? It should allow us a bit of margin to sin. But it doesn't. Not willfully, anyway. We must be very careful uh, to do what God says Careful to do what God says is right, because if we don't, we find out very quickly that our sin, our disobedience, has consequences. There's a breach in our relationship with him that will eventually create a breach and a break in our relationship with others as well. The Bible doesn't hesitate to talk about God disciplining the persistently disobedient. Nor does it shy away from telling us that his discipline is painful. It's not for nothing that he uses the language of the rod here. Even the beloved psalm that we love to quote and teach to our kids and maybe even recite before we go to bed each night, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, has the line in it, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We love God's love. We love his mercy. We love his goodness. We love his kindness. We shy away from his discipline. And we forget that because God is gracious, he gives us plenty of warning before he disciplines us. It's not as if God didn't give Israel time to repent. We saw this when we went through the study of Zechariah, that before God sent Assyria to capture and destroy and conquer Israel before he sent Babylon to conquer Judah. He sent them prophet after prophet after prophet. He spent hundreds of years 
warning his people, telling them, turn from your wicked ways, return to me, return to me, or these things will happen. God gives us plenty of time to change our heart, to change our mind, to change our behavior. And when we don't, he disciplines us. But he never disciplines us without cause. If you think about it, if God disciplined David, if he disciplined Solomon, if he disciplined the nation of Israel, how much more so will he discipline us when we disobey? Especially in the light of Christ's atoning sacrifice. But bear in mind that when God does exercise his discipline, when he punishes disobedience, he does so as a loving father. This is the whole point of the early part of Hebrews 12. The writer of the Hebrews writes this. It says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which we all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Well, there it is. So it's, it's the sense, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. <laughs> It means that if you belong to God, that if he has chosen you, if he has pulled you out of darkness into the glorious light of his son, if he has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, and after that you break his rules, he will discipline you. But when he does discipline you, he is treating you like a loving father who disciplines their son or their daughter when they misbehave. That's the point that Ethan can't see. That's the the thing he is blind to. He can't reconcile that. He says, I know that there's been this breach, but why are everyone else paying for this price? The thing is, of course, that when God disciplines us, we must not think that he has stopped loving us, or that he has cast us off, or that he has rejected us. Every parent knows this. Your child misbehaves, no matter what age, and you discipline them. Why do you discipline them? You discipline them because you love them. Because you want them to be, you want them to be accepted in polite society. You want to say, look, you can't act that selfishly. You can't speak that rudely. You can't behave that brutishly. People behave like this. They learn their manners. They speak respectfully. They act respectfully. We don't stop loving them, it's because we love them. And if they treat the things that we teach them with disdain, we get rightly upset because we understand that there's a good and a right way to live and to think. And when we stray outside that line, 
We are corrected. We are disciplined. We experience the rod. But remember, looking at this from the perspective of the New Testament, we may bear the rod, but Christ bore the cross so that we will only bear the rod. So that we will only bear a light and momentary affliction. So he experienced the ultimate discipline, not for anything that he had done, but because of our need to be forgiven, redeemed, and restored into a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. Christ bore the ultimate punishment. We may bear the rod, but he bore the cross. So even when God disciplines us, he is loving us. His grace continually flows into our lives because the thing at stake when God disciplines us, the thing at stake isn't our obedience. The issue at stake is his love and faithfulness to his covenant of which we have become a part, of which he has made us members one of another by virtue of what his son has done. And because he loves the son, he loves all those who love his son equally. It's not as if God has one level of love for Jesus and another level of love for us. Read, John, read Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 and see there where Jesus prays that the Father who loves the Son would share that same love with Jesus' followers. And so God has a passion for his desire to love us the way he loved Jesus. That's why he promises to David, I will not take my love from him, my chosen, my anointed one, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. So, just to keep things in context, in the same way that God's love for David will offset the faithlessness of David's descendants and all of Israel, the same way God's love for David offsets that, God's love for Jesus offsets the disobedience and the faithlessness of his children. Paul says it in 2 Timothy, we may be faithless, but he is faithful. When God makes a promise, he aims to be faithful, to keep it, and he does. He kept his promise to David that he would have a descendant who would sit on the throne forever. How do we know this? We know this because... Well, well, the Bible tells us so. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God gave. It's not that Jesus was simply born, but God gave Jesus for a very specific purpose. We know this because God sent Jesus, Paul, who describes him as descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. That's Romans 1, 3, and 4. We know this because when Jesus enters Jerusalem on that very first Palm Sunday in Matthew 21, Matthew 21, 9, how is he greeted by the people? The crowds went before him, Matthew says, and they were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So here, we know God kept his promise to David, even though Ethan can't see it. Even though from Ethan's perspective, God is being faithless. 
God is at work to keep his promise to David because Jesus is the offspring of David who will live forever. And we are the offspring of Jesus who by faith in him will live forever. That Christ is the the promised King of Kings, the foretold Lord of Lords whose authority, whose throne is eternal. Look, if God kept his promise to David, even though he disciplined David's descendants and all Israel for their disobedience, then so too God will keep his promise to save all those who trust in Jesus, even when he disciplines us for our disobedience. Now that may sound odd to say it that way. But read the letters of the New Testament. And with rare exception, particularly Paul's letters, with rare exception, Paul's letters are not written to churches where things are going well. Most of his letters, if not all of them, well, you can throw out maybe with the exception of Philemon and and, and Philippians, but even Philippians, you got Judea and Scythian not getting along. Most of the letters of the New Testament are written to address a problem, a sin issue, a corrective kind of instruction that Paul is giving. Why? Because God's people have been brought into covenant relationship with God through faith in Christ, and there is now a new way we must learn how to live a new way we must learn how to think, not only about ourselves, but about God and how we relate to him and relate to others. Ethan, on that side of the cross, doesn't see that. We have a distinct advantage. We can see how these words, these laments, these complaints are worked out and fulfilled in Christ. It's it's why Jeremiah will say in Lamentations, almost predicting the, the, the coming of Christ, What man has any right to complain in view of his sins? That about takes care of it. Jesus bore the full punishment so that we can experience the the fullness of God's grace. God is going to be faithful to his covenant. And it is his faithfulness that guarantees our position and our security with him. It's why uh, the Apostle Paul writes one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament. It's in Galatians 2, and uh, I'm going to read it to you, but I'm going to read it to you from the New English Translation because of its stress on the faithfulness of Christ. This is a a very famous passage. You'll, You'll recognize it as you read it. Paul says, We know that no one is justified by works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Just hang on that for a moment. By the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Not your faithfulness, not my faithfulness, but his faithfulness. How faithful is Jesus? Very faithful. Right? Rock solid faithful. He endured the cross, scorning its shame for the joy that was set before him. The joy of the Father who said, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, here is your inheritance, these men and women whom you have redeemed by your blood. We have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ we ourselves have also been found to be sinners, is Christ the one who encourages sin? Absolutely not. But if I build up again those things I once destroyed, I demonstrate that I am the one who breaks God's law. For through the law I die to the law, so that I may live to God. 
I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the life I now live in the body, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If we can get a glimpse of what it means to trust in the faithfulness of Christ, to know that because of his faithfulness, that as Jesus says, if this is the Father's hand and Christ is in the Father's hand and we are in Christ's hand, because of Christ's faithfulness, who can pry us from that? That's why Paul can say with such conviction at the end of Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? And then he lists a whole bunch of things that would threaten that. And he says, nothing, nothing, nothing. No power on hell, no power on earth, no power in heaven can separate us from the love of God in Christ because of the faithfulness of Christ. Your life, my life, is really shaped by whom we cry to. So if you're going to cry or lament or complain about where you are and how God is treating you, complain to him. Go to his word. Pray. Look at the faithfulness of Christ. Stare at it until you see it. Meditate on it. Think about it. Think about the fact that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, he made us his friend. While we were rebels, he brought us into his kingdom and made us loyal subjects of our God and King. That's why at the end, even though in, in verses uh, 46 to 51, um, Ethan cries out with this, how long, O Lord? Because when God does something that challenges everything you believe about him, you remind him to, rem- to remember his steadfast love. How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What Man can live and never see death. Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, by which your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. That's the essence of any lament, isn't it? How long, O Lord? How long is this going to take? You go to the DMV, right? And you're like, how long is this going to take? You go to the doctor's office, how long is this going to be? How long am I going to be here? It reveals our expectation at the same time. It may be a complaint, but it also reveals an expectation that there is an end date to this. And when I go to the dentist for a root canal, I don't particularly like having to go to the dentist for a root canal, but I know... I've got to spend at least an hour in that chair. But that's it, an hour. I'm all numbed up. He does his work. And after an hour or so, I leave. i got to go back for another follow-up for the crown to be put in. But I know there's a start and there's a finish. I can put up with that. But when you don't know when the end date is, like when something starts and you don't know when it ends, that's when you get anxious. That's when you get nervous. That's when you get fearful. That's when you become frightened. That's when you become scared. 
When our kids were little and the sun would go down every night, they had no concept of time. They just knew the sun went down. It's getting dark. They had no long night time would last. It was like, listen, kids, about eight hours, the sun will come up, you're going to be fine. They didn't know that. Every, every dawn was like a surprise. Oh, look at that. The sun came up. But when the sun goes down and you're in darkness and you don't know when the sun is coming up, you get a little scared. You get very scared. In a more humorous, although every parent knows this as well, because you get in the car and go on vacation. It's going to take you several hours, maybe a couple of days to get to your destination. What happens within the first 15, 20 minutes of a car ride on a long trip? Are we there yet? How long are we, do we have to be in the car? That's what Ethan is saying. How long? But it's even more than that because it's like, it's not just how long, it's your wrath is being poured out. This is, this is painful beyond imagination to him. I mean, at least when I'm in the dentist chair for a root canal, my mouth is numb. My mother, God rest her soul, never used anesthesia. How do you do that? But that's what Ethan is saying. I'm having a root canal without anesthesia. How long? How long do I have to endure this? And usually, if God is gracious enough to give us an answer, the answer is this. It will take as long as it takes for you to be conformed into the image and likeness of my son. Because we're on God's timetable, not ours. You get the sense of childishness as well with Ethan when he says, look, look, he he says, remember how short my time is? What vanity you've created the children. It's like, my time is important, God. Let's get this over with. Let's speed this up a little bit. Can you get on with the discipline so you make me like Jesus and then we'll move on? It doesn't work that way. We're not on our timetable. We're on his timetable because God always takes the long view. Life is short, no doubt. Eternity is forever, and it's eternity for which God is preparing us. Life is short for sure. But God rarely, if ever, works according to our sense of time. And any time we ask God that question, how long, O Lord? The other part of that question is, we're asking him to resolve the tension between our faith and our experience. I remember years ago listening uh, to a lecture by Elizabeth Elliot, who was the wife of Jim Elliot, who was killed by um, uh, the the Alca in, uh, in Ecuador back in 1956. And she was talking about suffering and pain and, and how surprised we are that life can be unfair. And she, she compared it to a boxer stepping into a ring and at the end of the first round going back into his corner and complaining to his manager saying, that guy over there keeps hitting me. It's like, well, son, that's the whole point of the, the match here. You're going to get hit and you've got to also be able to hit back. Life is like that. And we're surprised when somehow life is unfair because we have this idea that life, well, it basically revolves around me and my sense of comfort. And when life gets uncomfortable, obviously, something has gone amiss here. People aren't appreciating how special I am and how much they need to acknowledge the fact that I am to be comfortable above all things. God doesn't work that way. He just doesn't. We forget that God refines our view, if you will, our theology, by leading us through 
difficult and trying situations. It may feel like he has forsaken us, but he has not. How do we know this? Well, remember Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the psalmist promised long before Jesus died, you will not abandon your beloved to the grave. Because we know three days later, God raised him from the dead. That's what the writer of the Hebrews affirms, that God remembered Jesus and brought back from the dead our great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. So God made a promise to Jesus to raise him from the dead by virtue of his obedience. And because we have trusted in Christ's obedience and trust in Christ's faithfulness, God will not forsake us either. He will not cast us off. He will never reject us, ever, even when life gets uncomfortable. Ethan's question at the end there, verse 49, where is your steadfast love of old by which your faithfulness you swore to David, tells us that he is finding it impossible to reconcile his understanding of God's nature, God's experience. He thinks God has broken his promise to David. He hasn't. We know that because of what God did through Christ. So what does Ethan do? Does he deconstruct his faith? Does he toss it away? He prays. He prays. He's learning, as we must learn, that our relationship with God is not based on a transaction. God, I will do this for you because you will do this for me. I will be good, Lord, because I know if I'm good, you're going to bless me. And if I'm bad, you're not. Our relationship with God is not based on a transaction. Our relationship with God is based on the faithfulness of Christ by which we enter into a relationship with God. And that relationship allows us to go to God in prayer. Read Psalm 73 because Ethan's friend Asaph had the same dilemma. Asaph wrestled with the fact that how could God be good to the ungodly? How could those who have no regard for God at all do so well and those who regard God highly and serve him are doing so poorly? And Asaph is wrestling with this inequity. He's wrestling with this injustice. He's wrestling with this conflict that he sees in God's character. And how does he resolve it? He goes into the temple. He goes before God into his presence and he prays. In verses 16 and 17, Asaph says this, When I sought to understand this, when I sought to understand this inequity, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood. And then he sees before him how God has placed the ungodly who reject his law and go their own way on a slippery path. That's why Ethan goes to prayer. That's why you cry out to God. Rather than let his act of understanding destroy his relationship with God, he sacrifices his misunderstanding, right? The Psalms always talk about a sacrifice of praise. Sometimes you don't want to praise him. It hurts too much. But you praise him because it's in offering him that pain, in offering him that dismay, in offering him all of that perplexity, in offering to him all of that angst and anger and fear and all of that stuff. Clarity. Peace. Maybe just for a moment, but you get it. You go back again and again and again until... Until either the clouds clear or there's a settledness in your heart that you're going to 
Trust God to sail you through this storm and help you navigate through it. That's why I think the psalm ends with that benediction. Because there's hope. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. It's, it's, it's what Job says in Job 3.15. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. It's what Peter says at the end of John 6 when Jesus says these very, very difficult things about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and everyone leaves except the 12. And Jesus looks at them and says, what about you? Are you going to leave me too? And Peter famously says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then there's this from Romans 8.11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Why? Because of his spirit who dwells in you. And I'll end with this. Um, there was a, a Puritan named William Gurnall who wrote a three-volume set, a uh, three-volume commentary on Ephesians 6 called The Christian in Complete Armor. And in the early part of, of that volume, Gurnall talks about there are times, he says, when a saint is called to trust in a withdrawing God. This requires, he says, a bold step of faith to venture into God's presence with the same temerity, the same boldness as Esther into the presence of King Asuharis. Remember, if he doesn't point the scepter at her, she's in trouble. Even when no smile lights God's face, when no golden scepter is extended to summon us to come near, we must press forward with this noble resolution. If I perish, I perish. The good news is that because of the faithfulness of Christ, we will not perish, but we will have life, and we will have it forever. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Your grace, which allows us to complain, for your mercy, which answers our complaint and sets our feet on solid ground. We thank you as well for the faithfulness of Christ, which gives us the security to offer our complaint by way of sacrifice and to gain the assurance that no matter what, no matter what, nothing can separate us from your love and that our life with you is held firm and secure now and forever. This we ask and pray and give you thanks for in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.